This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. We live in a time of great, even extraordinary interest in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. This is, in some measure, because we live after the outbreak of Neo-Pentecostalism in Topeka and Los Angeles just after the turn of the 20th century. Since that time, scholars have spoken of a third wave of global Pentecostalism because it is one of the most influential religious movements across the globe. Pentecostalism has influenced the way many evangelicals think and speak today about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, there are many other influential ways of speaking and thinking about the Holy Spirit. Mike Horton is J. Gresham Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. He has been thinking and writing about these issues for a long time. He is the author of a new book on the person and work of the Spirit, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit. This title, with other faculty titles, is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Mike, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hey, Scott. Glad to be with you. Do you still like that bell? I love it. You know, it still has a ring of truth about it. <laughs> yes. Um, Jack Benny was the first person to use a bell. Was he really? To, yeah. to sell theology books? No, it wasn't theology, but um, in very early radio back in the 30s, huh. when he was inventing the medium, one of the first things that he did was ring that bell. Not this exact one, but one very much like it. Well, so welcome to Office Hours, and you've written a new book about the Holy Spirit. So first thing I guess we should get to is why another book about the Holy Spirit, since there have been a great number in, let's say, the last 30 years. Sure. There have been a lot of books in the last 30 years on the Holy Spirit, but not a lot really from the Reformed tradition. And I think that, you know, there's been a—this is oversimplified, but a tendency maybe to say— Okay, we'll give the Pentecostals and Charismatics the third person of the Trinity. We'll take the Father and the Son. I know that that's an overgeneralization. But a tendency to say, well, they write about that. They talk about that's sort of their bailiwick. And that's been, I think, harmful on two fronts. One, because we're not, quote-unquote, in the game, helping people as they're thinking about whether to adopt this view of the Holy Spirit or that view of the Holy Spirit, not bringing Reformed arguments about the Holy Spirit to the table, but also we're impoverishing our own people by not giving sufficient attention to the Holy Spirit. You know, you look at our tradition, Scott, as you well know, B.B. Warfield called Calvin the theologian of the Holy Spirit. You have Roman Catholic scholars saying that the one voice in the entire Reformation period on both sides, Protestant and Catholic, who really recovered a robust view of the Holy Spirit's person and work was John Calvin. You get that on all sides. And that's true also with the early Reformed theologians, not just Calvin. Peter Marvermilly, Martin Bootser, uh, all sorts of other folks. The Puritans, for Pete's sake, are masterful at tracing the wonderful contours of the Spirit's person work throughout redemptive history. Think of especially John Owen, Thomas Goodwin, and others. So what happened? Abraham Kuyper, in the end of the 19th century, wrote a fantastic tome on the Holy Spirit. But we really don't have a lot in the 20th century. And I again, I think that this not only keeps us out of the discussion, as it were, where you know people just assume, well, Reformed people don't talk about the Holy Spirit, or at the same time, it impoverishes us because, as Calvin rightly says, 
everything that Christ accomplished for us outside of us in history would be for naught if the Holy Spirit did not unite us to Christ here and now. And so the person and work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely as essential to our salvation as the person and work of the Father and the Son. So when we neglect the Spirit in our theology, we're really not being, as Reformed people, faithful to what we confess, faithful to our own tradition, nor to the way that we read Scripture. Yeah, in worship, do we ever kind of stall for a moment when we say, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified? That the Holy Spirit is worshiped and glorified together with and as much as the Father and the Son? Does that line in the Nicene Creed ever give us pause? Which is a powerful thing to say. In fact, one of the things you meditate on in this book, and we're talking with Mike Horton about his new book, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit, one of the phrases that you use as a sort of jumping off point is the language of the Nicene Creed, Lord and giver of life, which we see at the very beginning of the biblical narrative. And you work a lot with Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Why is that so programmatic for you? Yeah, I think that one of the things that stands out particularly in this book that I really saw very clearly in earlier Reformed treatments, but I don't see a lot of or hear a lot of in contemporary Reformed discourse as much, is the Holy Spirit's role in creation and providence, not only in applying redemption. See, that's when we usually talk about the Holy Spirit. We talk about the Holy Spirit in our systematic theology when we get to regeneration and sanctification and so forth. That's like walking into a movie midway. The Holy Spirit has a long and fruitful career before regenerating me. He has been the regenerator, the life giver within the Godhead, even from creation. So right there in Genesis 1-2, the Holy Spirit is hovering over creation, over the waters. Some of our writers in the past have talked about the Holy Spirit in maternal terms as impregnating the seas, making them fill with life. So you have the Father speaking the Word, the Son as the mediator of that Word, and the Holy Spirit is the one who always brings that Word to fruitfulness, to completion, brings the baby to full term, if you will. You just trace that from creation to providence to the incarnation. How can I, a virgin, conceive? How will this be possible? And the angel says to Mary, don't worry about it. God has this taken care of because the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, the same language of the Holy Spirit overshadowing the waters in creation, hovering over Israel in the cloud and so forth. And so that what is born of you will be the Son of God, will be holy. Wherever the Holy Spirit broods, common space becomes holy. Wherever the Holy Spirit is present, that's why it was so tragic when the Holy Spirit evacuated the earthly temple, and why it's so comforting to know that He will never leave us nor forsake us. He indwells us now permanently. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Is it fair to say that part of what you're trying to do in this book is to reassert or reestablish a paradigm that is a full-orbed understanding of the Holy Spirit, you know, as much as you can do in one volume, yeah. um, that is not Pentecostal? In other words, so establishing an alternate paradigm that is really deeply interested in accounting for all of the work of the Spirit and not just focusing, for example, on the extraordinary yeah, exactly. That's another emphasis here that the Holy Spirit, if you look at you know his CV, as it were, from Genesis to Revelation, the Holy Spirit is involved in two things. The Holy Spirit likes matter. He likes splashing around in water. And that's an important point. <laughs> yeah. And what you're really getting at, at something else here. So you need to flesh that out. 
Well, right from the get-go. As it were, no pun intended. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right from the get-go, the Holy Spirit's the one, remember, brooding over the waters. I love Calvin's line. He says, even in its state of darkness and void, the Holy Spirit was cherishing the confused mass beneath his wings. Hmm. Cherishing the confused mass. So what you're really saying is if you're going to be faithful to Scripture, you can't, as sometimes Christians have done, set up this dualism between the Holy Spirit on the one hand and matter on the other, as if these are two things that are unrelated. And you're saying, really, the Holy Spirit, matter comes from the Holy Spirit, and he operates through those things that he has created. Is that fair? Exactly. The Father speaks creation into existence in the Son, but it's the Holy Spirit who makes that created matter fruitful, you know, bearing fruit so that it is what God has worded it or declared it, commanded it, summoned it to be. That's the Holy Spirit's work in creation. It's the Holy Spirit's work in the history of Israel. It's the Holy Spirit's work in providence. It's the Holy Spirit's work in redemption, upholding Christ in his ministry. I mean, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say to the Pharisees, that attributing his miracles to Satan is blasphemy against him and his deity, but rather it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit that the servant of the Lord, in his humanity, his humiliation, performed those miracles. And so I think that we contend to put all of the weight on Christ and become Nestorian, that's the heresy where you separate the two natures of Christ, almost turn Jesus into two persons, divine and human, and he's divine when he heals, and then when he's hungry, he's human, and we switch back and forth. No, he's human all the time. He's also divine all the time, but he has hidden his divine nature and his prerogatives so that he is finally the human being, the representative human being who's doing what Adam should have done, namely obeying God, loving God the Father, fulfilling his commands, relying on his spirit fully and completely and wholly throughout his life. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking with Mike Horton about his new book, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit. One of the major trends that you identify in modern philosophy relative to this question is the tendency to depersonalize the Holy Spirit. What does that mean to depersonalize the person of the Spirit and How has that affected the way Christians think and speak about the person and work of the Spirit? Well, it's stunning how much in contemporary theology you get references to the Holy Spirit as it. That has trickled down into, I think, a lot of evangelical reflection even. You see it on the ground, but you definitely see it in scholarship. With all of the gender debates, you never see people say the Father, which is the source of the Son and the Holy Spirit. At least not in modern discourse. No, you say the Father who, and you'd say the Son who, and then you use the pronoun he rather than it. Even in the circles of Christian feminism, referring to God as mother, still she. I had an interesting exchange with Clark Pinnock, a late evangelical theologian, And he had written his book on the Holy Spirit in which, ironically, he was trying to make the Holy Spirit more central, and yet throughout kept referring to the Holy Spirit as it. And occasionally he referred to the Holy Spirit as she. And I said, I think we have to use the language of Scripture. Of course, none of the persons is a he or a she. It's analogical language. They're not gendered. But we follow the Scriptures in identifying the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as... He. 
Nevertheless, even if you're going to depart from what I think is a very important scriptural principle there, even if you're going to depart from it, don't go to it. I mean, that's the worst thing to do. Ironically, people don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit, even in Pentecostal circles. I was reading Pentecostal theologians who even confessed when it comes to who the Holy Spirit is or what the Holy Spirit is, we're not quite sure. Now, we know that all of these things are the result of the Holy Spirit's work, and questions have to be asked about that. If the Holy Spirit is worshiped and glorified together with the Father and the Son, he's not an it, he's not a principle, he's not an energy, he's not a force field, he's not a power source that we plug into. The Holy Spirit is a person just like the Father and the Son. And when you use those various analogies that you just listed off, you're not making those things up. In other words, you're not attributing to people language that they aren't using. You can find it in any number of books. And I'm not just talking about, you know, liberal mainline theology. I'm talking about evangelical books. I'm even talking about some Reformed books you could pick up that will say, for example, the Holy Spirit is the energy of God. And you say, okay, I would never say that the Father is the sovereignty of God. I would say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share in the sovereignty that is essential to the nature that they all share. It's amazing. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we use impersonal nouns. No, the Holy Spirit is not an energy. The Holy Spirit is a person who executes God's actions, who is involved in communicating the energies of God. But I think it's very important for us to say that the Holy Spirit communicates the energies, not to say the Holy Spirit is the energy. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu 888 480-8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. What do we lose when we depersonalize the Spirit? What are the consequences of removing His personality and turning Him into, as it were, some kind of sheer power or force? Well, the easiest thing to do there, of course, is then to, after depersonalizing the Holy Spirit, to basically confuse the Holy Spirit with me the Holy Spirit with my inner spirit. So, you know, I hear the Holy Spirit's voice in my heart. The Holy Spirit is talking to me. The Holy Spirit, because he indwells me, it is very easy for me to confuse the Holy Spirit with me, with my inner voice. And that's where we want to say, no, the Holy Spirit is on the creator side of the ledger, not the creation side of the ledger. And again, that the Holy Spirit works through ordinary means that he has appointed with the Father and the Son 
the Holy Spirit shows up and is active in power through the living voice of a preacher, through the written scriptures, through baptism and the Lord's Supper, just as the Holy Spirit confused the cherished mass that he hovered over in creation, just as he was present in giving his benediction over the new waters in which Jesus was baptized. So the Holy Spirit is not to be associated with something in us. The Holy Spirit is someone who comes to us from the outside and indwells us and takes up residence within us. So this urges us to be careful about two P words, pantheism and participation. I know those are distinct categories, but implicit in what you're saying is that we have to be very careful about confusing the creator with the creation, and then also careful about how we talk about the way that we participate in the work, and even, as some people say, the person of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, exactly. The Holy Spirit is a person of the Godhead who, even when he indwells us, is qualitatively different from us. His voice is qualitatively different from our voice. And so absolutely, we have to be very careful of pantheism here. We also have to, as you say, be careful about the way we talk about participating in the Holy Spirit. Some people argue, including some evangelical theologians, that the Holy Spirit is a better person of the Trinity to negotiate with, as it were, because the Father, well, he's kind of remote and, and you know, <laughs> kind of mean. I'm being a little bit facetious the way I'm presenting it, but sure. this is kind of how it, at least I read some of these statements. But Jesus comes along and, you know, when you're Christ-centered, you get all these theologies of substitutionary atonement and justification, all these legal forensic categories. But when you turn to the Holy Spirit, you get life transformation and power and lots of things that are more central in the gospel than those other things. That's really important because that's yeah. the spirit of the age, it isn't is. it? Right? That um, while theory and doctrine are fine and substitution, while well, whatever, but sort of getting on with things and getting things done and is power. the spirit of the yeah. age and power. Yeah. I think somebody I know wrote a book about power <laughs> a while back. <laughs> yeah, spiritual power. That's basically what I need. I don't need justification. I need empowerment. I need the Holy Spirit. One of the things that I take a whole chapter to argue there is walking through Jesus' upper room discourse, John 14 through 16, and really kind of taking in Jesus' high priestly prayer in chapter 17 too. And then everything around it, the soil all around it, from Genesis to Revelation, really, on the Holy Spirit as inseparable from the legal role of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes into the world in our flesh. Unlike the Holy Spirit, he comes into the world in our flesh as the judge on earth. Then he ascends to heaven as the judge in heaven. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus calls another attorney. And we render that comforter. A lot of translations say, you know, I will send the comforter. Well, Jesus says, I will send alos parakletos, another paraclete. And paraclete, still in modern Hebrew, I understand, means lawyer, attorney, solicitor. And interesting, you go back to Origen, the church father Origen, and he explains why it should be translated comforter. He says, because we know that Jesus Christ is the judge, judgment is in his hands, but the Holy Spirit is the comforter. Well, that's a theological argument that doesn't, you know, stand up to the test of a whole host of other things. One, in 1 John 2, 2, Jesus is described there as a parakletos, as an advocate. Same word is used. 
if it's advocate there in reference to Jesus, why isn't it advocate there in the upper room discourse? And then secondly, he fails to realize when he says the Holy Spirit isn't the intercessor Jesus is, that Paul in Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. So one of the things I try to do in that chapter is show that the Holy Spirit doesn't have a different vocation than the Son with respect to judgment, but is a different lawyer than the Son. The Son comes to be our mediator. The Son comes in our flesh to be our substitute so that God can be both just and justifier of the ungodly. The Holy Spirit is sent into our hearts to conduct that trial inwardly, to convict us inwardly. So we are convicted outwardly by the law, but without the Holy Spirit, we're not convicted inwardly that we have broken it. And so what we need, Jesus says in that upper room discourse, is not only an attorney at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, we need an attorney in our heart actually bringing us to confession of our guilt and to an acceptance through faith of the righteousness of Christ. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing now in his ministry on earth. He is basically conducting a trial in our hearts that corresponds to the trial in history that Jesus entered into. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking with Mike Horton about his new book, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit. One of the things I like about this very substantial volume is that not only do you work with the tradition and history and contemporary systematic theology, but you deliberately keep taking us back to Scripture, both in the broad sense of looking at the sweep of redemptive history, but also particular passages. So this is, in some ways, a biblical theological work as much as it is a systematic theological work. Why is that so important? Yeah, because I think, you know, in every doctrine of systematic theology, we would agree, it's mined from a biblical theological perspective. So the way we, in our Reformed circles, especially at Westminster, like to go about things is to, first of all, trace a theme from Genesis to Revelation in its biblical theological context. So it's sort of like looking at a topographical map. You see the mountains and the valleys and the streams, but then looking at the logical connections between the particular doctrines. Okay, for instance, the development of the doctrine of the atonement from Genesis to Revelation, but how does the atonement relate to original sin and to justification and to sanctification and so forth? You need a street map for that. And so a topographical map for biblical theology gives you a lay of the land but then you need a street map to know how to get around between doctrines. That's what I'm trying to do here, and I really think that, you know, a lot of treatments of the Holy Spirit are either not very close to the biblical text at all, are more speculative. That's a technical word you're using. When you say speculative, you mean starting with a premise and then reasoning out to a series of conclusions. Without any text underneath you. Without any particular biblical support. Right. Right. So speculative, you're using in a technical sense yeah. there. And you, you want your work to be really grounded in the text of Scripture and coming out of it. We're talking about high and holy things here. We are on holy ground. We better not be uh, pulling this out of our hat. This is really important that your theology or the theology that you're advocating, understanding of the Holy Spirit, his person and his work, really comes out of Scripture. You're seeing him operate not just in Acts 
or in the Gospels, but really through the whole of Scripture, through the law, through the prophets, the history of salvation. One of the more interesting discussions of the many is the role of the Spirit in the Incarnation, where you help us see, you know, how central the Spirit is to the most central act of the history of redemption, or one of them anyway. Without the Incarnation, there's no obedience. Without Incarnation and obedience, there's no death and resurrection. And all of that really you have this marvelous miracle of the Spirit, as you were alluding to earlier, again, hovering over the face of the deep, as it were. Yeah, in John 20, Jesus breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, at Pentecost, he pours out the Holy Spirit from on high. But before Jesus gives the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives Jesus. <laughs> and that's what's really astonishing. You want to raise your appreciation for the person and work of the Holy Spirit. There is no incarnation without Jesus. You want to talk about the Holy Spirit working through matter? There is no better example than the fact that the Holy Spirit was working with Mary's DNA. And so we're talking about mystery here. Yeah. So at the same time, we have matter, we have the reality of the person and work of the Spirit, and we have profound, unfathomable mystery. Yeah. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. And the more we kind of understand the biblical passages on this, the more mystery becomes profound and deep to us. When you talk about depersonalizing the Spirit and regrounding our understanding of the Spirit in Scripture, you're not stripping away mystery. You're really, in a sense, magnifying yeah. mystery. And I say this because there are people who will say to me, I want more mystery. Yeah. But that mystery seems to lead them away from Scripture, right. away from Christ and into pantheism or depersonalizing or something else. Exactly. Yeah, astronomers tell us that the more they understand about the cosmos, the more baffled they are, the more mysterious they find it to be. It's not like there are a hundred answers, and when we get to uh, 90 of the questions answered, the other 10 are pretty easy. Is that when we have a hundred questions answered, we discover that we have a thousand more that's the way it goes here. And it's wonderful to have a God who's incomprehensible and yet apprehensible. We can apprehend him by his word, but we can't comprehend him. So yeah, these are really important things. To go back to the point about why scripture is so important here, here's the thing. When we just have a systematic theological or doctrinal approach, that's when we tend to focus on the Holy Spirit only when we get to regeneration. A biblical theological sweep makes us go to Genesis and say, okay, let's trace the Holy Spirit's career from Genesis to Revelation, and that's where we get this broader horizon for appreciating the Holy Spirit. So you've produced this substantial and, I think, important volume on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And some critics of Reformed theology and pieties might say, and I can imagine this, well, there they go again. The Reformed folks are writing about the Spirit, but... So to anticipate this, how did it affect you personally? Mm -hmm. yeah. What's the affective outcome of all this work on the Spirit? Great question. One of the reasons I wanted to do this was because uh, I, mean, I was asked by Moore Theological College in Australia to bring the Moore Lectures uh, a few years ago, and they said, do it on whatever you want. And the reason I wanted to do it on the Holy Spirit was because I wanted to understand the Holy Spirit better as a Christian. 
just, you know, as a follower of Christ, as one who was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I didn't think that I had enough understanding of the Holy Spirit's person and work. This, of course, when you're asking a question like that, it's not an intellectual thing alone. It's not a head game. When you're asking a question like that, it's because you personally feel a need, a deeper need for the Holy Spirit in your life. That's why I wrote this book. I wanted to understand the Holy Spirit better so that I could have a more intimate communion with the Father in the Son. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.